Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today in the chair we have Patrick. Now Patrick is 29 years old and currently lives in Melbourne, Australia. He's in recovery from alcohol addiction and his sobriety date is the 27th of May 2021. Now he's here today to share his story so I'd love to welcome Patrick. How are you? Morning, afternoon, Ash. <laughs> it is. Has it creeped over to afternoon it already? Has. Wow, we've been chatting away off offline. We have, but um, no, nah, great to be here and what a fantastic idea for a podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Now, normally I give a bit of an intro spiel about my guests, but um, Patrick and I actually have just met for the first time today, so... <laughs> I don't have a lot of background information. We actually connected through the rooms of AA and we've spoken to each other a lot through social media but haven't had the opportunity to connect in person. So thank you so much for coming along and agreeing to be on the podcast. Pleasure. Now, before we dive into your photo that I've asked you to bring in today, I would love you to give listeners a little bit of a brief overview of who is Patrick. So what do you do for work? What is your family situation? And what do you love to do for fun? Um, so my family situation, I've got two uh, parents, an older sister, uh, two beautiful nieces, uh, a brother-in-law, and uh, we're a pretty tight-knit family. We have a you know a WhatsApp group and a Facebook chat group, so we're always in communication and usually at each other's expense. Um, <laughs> but um, no, we're pretty tight. Uh, for work, I do something very different to what I used to do. I now full-time look after dogs and walk dogs. Um, my idea of heaven, okay. <laughs> um, which was a bit of an interesting career change. Um, after I got out of rehab, I was looking for, um, I was looking for work, but something that I wouldn't obsess about, um, you know, at three, four a.m. in the morning, and something that would be good for my recovery. And um, I worked at a doggy daycare for six months, and um, I realised again how much I love dogs and how much I uh, love having them in my life, and. Um, so I started to um, venture out and now, yeah, I walk a lot of dogs, I look after dogs, I train dogs. Um, I've saying to you before, I think my dog to human ratio is two to one at the moment. <laughs> so um, no, it's great. And um, for fun, look, I at the moment really I, I do whatever helps my recovery for fun. Um, I've learned that in sobriety, um, I've had to kind of reevaluate what fun is. Um, fun used to be you know, getting myself to the point of oblivion. Um, but now it's more the things that I can be present and feel relaxed and comfortable in doing. Um, I love walking. I love hiking. Um, I love um, connecting with, you know, small groups of people that I know well. I love, um, you know, deep conversations with people where um, we can sort of take our masks off and and, and be vulnerable. Um, I love binge-watching TV, as we all do. <laughs> um and yeah, anything really that 
brings me some peace of mind, um, I find enjoyable. That's so awesome. It's such an incredible shift in perspective that we have when we get sober, isn't it? The mm. things that we used to deem fun would often be quite detrimental to ourselves as a whole. And now you look at those things that are going to fill your cup and, and make life better. Well, that's right. And um, yeah, once upon a time, I thought the idea of fun was, you know, drinking and drugging uh, so that my mind and my body could be 100 miles apart. And now... Um, the, the things that bring me, you know, the most joy um, is when I'm, you know, feet are firmly planted on the ground and I'm just experiencing what's in front of me. Um, you know, when I can, you know, spend time with my mum or go for a walk with mum, you know, to have a lot of that that fear and anxiety no longer there and we can just sort of chat and mm-hmm. there's no agendas um, to hang out with my, my nieces and um, to see, you know, the fun that they have and and just to be there and to remember it and to um, feel it um, is is one of those great things about sobriety. It's almost like seeing the world in colour for mm. the first time, isn't it? Yeah. It's funny. Um, that's interesting you say that. I, um, I, I went to a, a meeting last night with a newcomer and it was sort of six or seven days sober and we um, – we caught up and had a coffee and we went to a meeting and on the way home, you know, it was his first meeting and his, you know, so he had lots of questions. He was so confused about his <laughs> life, but he did say, he was like, you know, I feel like I'm just witnessing stuff now. I'm noticing stuff. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's great. Isn't it? Like he goes, I'm smelling things. I'm hearing things. It's like, you know, the, the lights of, you know, they've come back on. The lights have come on. That's yeah. right. That's right. Now, Patrick, I've asked you to bring in a photo today. And I've asked it to be from a time in your life where your insides didn't match your outsides. So perhaps you were presenting one version of yourself to the world, but the truth was you were really struggling on the inside. Now, I haven't seen the photo yet, but I'd love to take a look now. Alrighty. Okay. So let me describe what I'm looking for for our listeners. I'm looking at a photo of yourself with another woman and a a adorable baby might I add wow those eyes and the baby's got a port power (laughs) beanie on so Mm. that's that's one of the AFL teams for those who don't know Um, so I'm assuming you're at a footy match can you talk to me about what was not only going on in the photo but what was going on for you at that time? And I should mention for those that are listening, you can check this photo out on the website ashbutters.com. Yeah, so um, the first thing I'll say is that my sister will be very happy with how you described um, her little <laughs> one. Um, but that's my sister and uh, my niece. Um, we were, it was in 2021. Um, Port Adelaide don't play a lot of games in Melbourne, so when they do, it's always a bit of an occasion. But it was also her first footy game that she mm-hmm. went to, um, and she was, you know, she was loving life. She was loving the sounds and the noises and the colour. Um, they're not Port Adelaide supporters, but they they were for the afternoon. But for me, um, that was a week before I went into rehab. Um, I was, I'd lost my job at that point um, because of my drinking, um, and I was. I was living with my parents because I'd separated from my from a previous relationship we'd been living together, and at that point, um, my my world was tiny. Um, you know, I 
had very few friends, um, not necessarily because of um, drinking, but you know, I had very few friends. Uh, I had very few options. Um, I, my drinking was the worst it had been and um, I was just sort of nowhere. And um, a week later I went into rehab for three months. Um, but at the time, it's a, it's a weird photo to, for me to look at because on one hand it does bring back some great memories because it was a really enjoyable afternoon. But what I do remember was that, you know, my sister and my niece left at halftime because it was nap time, mm. you know, and I went to the bar and just sat at the bar and watched the rest of the game on the TV um, and just drank and drank and drank. And then after the game, I went to a bottle and drank more and um, because that's just where I was at. I was so, um, I was in just so much pain and um, I knew that, my options were I could keep drinking and die, um, which isn't – I mean, it sounds melodramatic, but it's its a fact. Um, if I had kept drinking, I would have died eventually from some some something to do with alcohol. And the other option was that I can get recovery and get sober, which is a massive mountain to climb, but really that was, that was it at that stage. They were the only two options. So at the time of that photo, did you know that you were going into rehab or was there – more to come. I was at that point. I was wrestling with going into rehab. I I didn't want to go. I knew I had to go, but I didn't want to go. I wanted to. I wanted to plug into that last bit of self will mm. and and figure it out on my own. Mm. But everyone around me could see as clear as mud that I needed a circuit breaker. I needed to um, almost just check myself out of life mm. and and just in an environment that was recovery focused and I could start to understand why I drank in the first place mm-hmm. because at that point I didn't really understand it and I needed to because that was the, the key to getting getting well. I think you touch on something really important there and it was the same for me is that I needed rehab to act as a circuit ba- breaker to create that distance between myself and the alcohol because if I kept continuing to drink, then I wasn't able to absorb the message or get a really clear understanding of the reasons why I was drinking. And so, you know, I've spoken about this before that people would share information with me about the disease of alcoholism and I couldn't identify and I didn't think that I had a problem, even though on the outside it was clear that I was abusing alcohol but it wasn't until I had that distance that temptation was removed and I had a a clear break or a window of time where that clarity of mind was there for me to be able to start absorbing recovery and actually really get it Mm. yeah it was it it was about um removing yeah removing myself from the people places and things um ultimately because um you know I tried AA in the past um, I'd been to meetings, I had, as we do at the beginning, we look for the differences and not the similarities. Um, I did all of that, um, but really I needed to, like I said, just be removed from those people, places and things and start to learn about myself, um, free from all the, the baggage that was that was there. Mm. And what did your drinking look like right before you went in? What were, what, you know, the year leading up, what was... Um, it was every day... Um, it got to the point of drinking every day, drinking in the morning um, to offset a lot of the physical discomfort 
that I was feeling, particularly when I first woke up. Was that anxiety? It was anxiety. It was um, shake, the shakes. Mm. I had the shakes big time. Um, you know, there was a constant feeling of sort of nausea in the stomach. That uh, real withdrawal. Yeah, the withdrawal stuff that um, is, you know, it. it I, I understand very clearly why... Um, why relapse can happen and why people drink through the withdrawal phase because it's just excruciating and and I just needed it to I needed the physical stuff just to stop and I needed my head to just just be dulled for a bit and not um, it would just be spinning out of control thoughts everywhere thoughts every second and can you try and describe for our listeners exactly what it's like to be like that for somebody who doesn't understand what it's like to withdraw from alcohol or to have a dependency what does it look like? So um, a, a really simple analogy that um, I read at a, an article not long ago by, um, was by a medical student at Harvard and they just sort of talked about the withdrawal period and the, the timeline of withdrawal and basically it ends up being like a car going down a hill at 100 miles an hour without any brakes and so and that's what the mind is like. It's just racing and racing and racing and... Um, and that's the mental side of things. So lots of paranoia, anxiety, um, hearing things, um, you know, hearing voices. Um, your sleep is just so compromised. Um, you know, I would sweat through the, the sheets. I couldn't get more than sort of 20, 30 minutes of sleep at a time. Uh, I'd wake up and I'd see things or I'd hear things. Um I remember when I was at work once and going through a really bad withdrawal and I was at my desk and as clear as anything, I thought I heard someone say, hey, Pat, and I literally got up and was walking across the office and there was no one in the office. And wow. it, it was just like, oh, my God, like it's it can get to that. I mean, that's probably the end of – that's the, the extreme, but um, it's basically the body just freaking out. Mm. <laughs> like where is the – where is the thing that I've been so accustomed to? Um, you know, your your brain sort of gets used to just kind of sitting in the sort of sedative effect of alcohol. The fog. The fog. And then the alcohol's gone. And it's like I said, it's like that car without any brakes just hurtling down the hill. Um, and that's why so many of us, we just, we need to pick up a drink at that point because it's the only thing that the the body at that point will react not positively to, but it will react to in a way that will calm things down. And I guess that's why they talk about alcohol being the solution, isn't it? When we talk about the disease of alcoholism, you know, we live with the disease of alcoholism, but actual drinking is the solution part. That's where it eases off. That's right. And one of the things that we learn um, when we get into the rooms of AA was that, um, you know, we're here for our drinking, uh, you know, and, and in the in the first instance, but we stay to correct, not correct, but change the way that we think and the way that we feel and react to certain things because um, the issue for me was certainly the drink, but it was it was the symptom of much bigger problems that I had with myself and with how I saw myself in the world. Mm. Now, as you just explained, that is where drinking can take you and perhaps that's an extreme place that you can get to. I'd like to take it back for a moment to your childhood. Now, is there anything that stands out for you, any experiences or any memories that perhaps contributed to 
how you developed into adulthood and your dependency on substances? It's a big question <laughs> and I've been thinking about um, – because I've listened to the last couple of episodes, so I knew that you were going to delve into this and I was, I was having a really good think about it because I'm always straddling that fine line between talking about my parents and people and, and I think sometimes we think that we're blaming, but we're certainly not. It's just the reality of our situation. It's how we're brought up. It's how my parents were brought up. Um, my childhood was, I think, defined by always being part of stuff, being part of groups, clubs, um, community. And uh, something that was probably instilled in me from a very, very early age was, you know, be an individual, that's all fine, but be someone that is useful and uses your talents for a greater purpose. Uh, and so I, I was part of lots of sporting clubs, um, you know, religion. I was part of a, you know, church congregation. I used to go to Mass every Sunday as a family. Um, well, part, I was part of a big um, school community, um, which was, uh, you know, quite a prominent school um, with, you know, a big network and, um, you know, uniforms and lots of institutional stuff and, and groups. And, um, you know, I love, I love that to some degree. I love... I do love being part of things and things that are bigger than myself and I think that's one of the great attractions for me of AA is that, um, you know, it's not about me, it's about, you know, the community of AA and how we all get well together and how we help each other get well. Um, but I would say the thing that stands out for me in my childhood was that I never really developed a sense of self. Um, I was always quite fearful of, of being myself. Um I was always very uncomfortable and I didn't realise how uncomfortable was until years and years later when I was in rehab talking about this stuff because at the time, you know, I didn't have that kind of emotional maturity or self-awareness to connect certain things, but I was deeply uncomfortable um, and I didn't feel like I really fitted in anywhere. I looked like I fitted in, but mm. I think I was very keen to project that image that I'm comfortable, I know my role, I have a role, um, you know, I loved listening to you talk about, you know, being in theatre. I was, I was in theatre as well growing <laughs> up and, and I was always – I loved it because I didn't have to be myself. That's exactly right. You know, it's the ultimate place to wear a mask. Brilliant. You know, you just – and, and there's the adrenaline, there's the validation, mm. um, but you don't have to be yourself. You can be a completely different person and I really thrived in that environment because it was a bit of an escape. Mm. Um, but there was just that, that sense of always hiding behind – bigger things and um you know like i remember at school i used to make fun of kids who didn't conform or were a bit alternative um and i was probably a bit of a bully at times you know i probably made fun of kids that didn't do what everyone else did and really um as i look back on that it was that was coming from a place of great insecurity and fear mm. because those kids were doing something that i didn't have it in me to do and that was just be themselves and and flourish as individuals um and thankfully i've kind of corrected that a bit but it's 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 one of those ongoing things in sobriety that we keep we keep finding out things about ourselves absolutely and so when did your relationship with alcohol begin so my um my first drink was at my sister's 18th and i was 13 or 14 at the time and um, at that stage, 
having a drink was as much about the look as anything. Like it was pretty cool as a 13, 14 year old. I think I had a couple of mates at that party with me and we all had a beer and it was, you know, it was fun. And it was, and it was like, but I loved it from, from that moment because it just like, it unlocked something in me that I didn't have going into it. Um, mm. you know, I was very chatty. I was, I was probably too chatty. Um, and yeah, I felt just amazing. And I kind of pocketed that memory and then kind of didn't really drink again until the end of school. And I finished exams and, you know, got, you know, shit-faced and would get shit-faced, you know, every weekend. But mm. that's kind of what it was. Every weekend um, we write ourselves off, we experience the hangover and then we kind of just get on with life. Which is incredibly, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, normal. Uh, yeah. within our culture and society mm. to do that kind of drinking at that age. Yeah, but like I look at it and I think, well, you know, because I always wonder about this when, you know, because it is a progressive illness and I always wonder, you know, when did it when did it cross over? But really I was probably drinking like an alcoholic then because every time I started I couldn't stop. Mm. It was just happening more kind of um, spaced out. It was more binging. Mm. Um so that's kind of when it started, but um, I suppose my alcohol, my relationship with alcohol, sort of pivoted a bit uh, when I was about twenty-three. I um, I start, I just started to really struggle in in life. Um, I had lost a few friends. Um, I was starting to really isolate a, a, away from my you know network, and um, my mental health started to really deteriorate. Um, social anxiety you know was was just rampant I didn't even understand what it was but I had it and it was and then I what just, did that look like for people that might not understand um it was like to use another theater analogy it's like being in a play and everyone's got a script and you don't oh. you know like um second guessing yourself thinking that everyone's going to judge you thinking that everyone is judging you um you know it's probably like some people would kind of wrongly look at it as like a form of self-obsession and it probably is to some degree because you are thinking about how you're being judged but it's 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 not a realistic or rational thought process mm. um you know it's like walking into the room and just thinking the worst possible thing is going to happen every time you do it and um and that can and that can breed come from a lot of different circumstances but for me i think it was just that my confidence was just shot to pieces um, I didn't really have any belief or confidence within myself and and as a result I kind of thought that everyone had the same opinion and everyone was kind of viewing me in the same way and um, one day I remember just drinking in the middle of the day because I think I was going somewhere or something was happening and I drank and I felt amazing and I went and I did this thing and it was fine I felt completely comfortable and so the short answer is that alcohol works tremendously well at the beginning to do exactly what you want it to do and from there the dependency can grow. Mm. It works until it doesn't anymore, I've heard before. So around 23 it started kicking off and how did it start to progress from there? I started to need more and more of it to get the same effect mm. um, and that's, that's kind of it. I needed more of it to achieve the same effect. And Did you ever start to think, oh, maybe I've got a bit of a problem here or was there any sort of moderation that you tried to implement? 
a lot, <laughs> a lot of moderation. Um, yeah, a lot of telling myself that. Yeah, uh, it, that and that was probably the second half of my drinking was when I really started to kind of say, right, I just on Friday night, Saturday night, mm. and I would do it, and then next week, Friday night, Saturday night, all right, a bit of Sunday. And then it would go back to the seven days a week and back to the... So the pattern would always re-emerge and be exactly the same. Mm. Um, but I knew I knew deep down something was wrong. I knew that people weren't drinking the way that I was drinking. But the only thing that kind of fed for me, it wasn't something that would motivate me. It was, it was really something that just grew the shame to a level of... you know, And the secrecy would build through that. And so that it was sort of like a flight or fight. It was like the shame has built so much that all I can really do now is just commit almost full time to hiding that shame from public view. Um, and so, you know, the addiction had grown, but with that the secrecy and having to keep up appearances and, and just keep the show on the road. Um, and in the back of my mind, I probably thought, this will all end in tears eventually. Mm. But for the time being, it's the only way I know how to cope. So I may as well just keep doing it. And had you put two and two together at that stage, you know, looking at your behaviours, were you identifying as an alcoholic or did you just think that you maybe were drinking too much? At the beginning, I thought that I was really onto something. I, I, I used to think to myself, just I wonder if other people know about <laughs> how, to, how they can use alcohol. You to found f- the winning ticket. I thought it was like... I, I literally would think to myself, God, I'm lucky I found this, you know, like do other people know that if they're feeling really low and sad, they can just drink and they'll feel better and they can just keep drinking and they'll keep feeling those feelings. And that's, I genuinely thought that I was, I was onto something and I was really just in love with, with alcohol because of that. Um, it was just so, it just rescued me from, from my head and from my feelings and, um, I um I now have forgotten the question. Oh, uh, and I yeah. So I, I I knew that I was drinking differently to other people. Um, actually, what was the question in the end? Did you know at that time you were an alcoholic? Yes. Yeah. I I knew that. Um, I knew that I was. I thought I was a problem drinker, and then I thought that I was a self medicator. But as I've come to understand, they are all part of the same. Um, they're all under the same umbrella, and that is, I'm an alcoholic because. Um, once I start drinking, I can't stop. And once I do have that first drink, um, it would set off this physical craving, this obsession in my head that I just needed more and more and more. And um, I knew that other people weren't reacting to alcohol that way mm. um, because I observed them. You know, like I think, you know, I would often be around, um, you know, friends and family and they'd be having a drink and they just drank differently to how I did. It would be excruciating to watch them how they could you know sit on a glass of wine for 45 minutes and baffles me have a sip put it down and then engage in conversation or um um and ah about should i have one i'm driving and i'm thinking how how do you have one drink and then just get on with your your day you Mm. know I, i couldn't understand any of that and i knew that the fact that i was having those debates in my head was meant that i was in the, the the well not really a minority but the camp of people that just can't have one and stop isn't it funny i shared the exact same experiences and i would watch my you know being out to dinner with friends and i i was well aware that i was drinking faster and that i was drinking more 
and that, you know, when we get, even when we all got home, we'd all go home separately and I would open up another bottle of wine when I got home and I had to drink to blackout. But that still wasn't enough for me to realise that I was an alcoholic. I just thought I really liked drinking. <laughs> well, yeah. Like, well, we, I mean, we did. We loved it. Yeah. But, but like... I guess what I thought was there was a choice yeah. when in reality there wasn't. No, and it's and it's also like um, like when I was chatting to this newcomer yesterday, like we were we were t- you know, we were ch- he was telling me about all these things that he'd do and and to you know and I and I said yeah I did the same things and I always thought that I was controlling how I was drinking because I was so I planned it so meticulously and. And I thought that that meant that I was in control when really that's the alcohol running my mm. life basically. it's That's the alcohol, you know, taking complete control of my diary and saying, you know, you're going to drink here, you're going to drink there, you're going to drink this much and then you're going to go. It's completely all power has been lost at that point. Absolutely. It's actually a really good indicator, isn't it, when you start to plan your life around your next drink mm. or, or I can't actually commit or show up to that because I know I'm going to be drinking the night before. So, you know, you better rule me out for that one. Like, mm. and, just crazy. And and just, yeah, and starting to just, yeah, and just starting to not care about commitments mm. because they, they're not as important as as drinking. And that sounds, you know, horribly selfish and whatever, but it's just the reality. It just gets to a point where, you know, the solution is so... We need it, and our bodies need it, and we just rely on it. That we can't can't see can't see sideways. Mm. Yes, we've, got, we've got the blinkers on. Tunnel vision, mm. yeah. So you mentioned that you had been to AA prior to going to rehab, but that you'd been in and out. So can you talk me through? Like, did you sort of hit a rock bottom and decide you needed a meeting, or talk me through that timeline? So it was. I think it was two thousand and eighteen. I was. I was probably three or four years into my drinking and at that stage it was things were starting to unravel and because it was in front of people and I was living with a, a partner at the stage and she had started to find the bottles um, and she was starting to ask questions and it was clear to her that you know I was not I was not just a big drink I was drinking in secret why was I drinking in secret um, my parents sort of got tipped off. Um, we had a bit of a chat one night where I was sort of something had happened, and I had to kind of be honest with them and say, you know, it, you know I think my drinking is getting a little out of control, um, and it was kind of just to get people off my back. And I said, all right, I'll go to AA. You know, mm-hmm. it's like that kind of all right, I'll go to AA and I'll fix my drinking. Um, I didn't realize that AA was an abstinent abstinence program which i think is kind of why i didn't stay around for too long yeah i um i went in there going okay cool i'm gonna get a bit of i thought it would be like free therapy and it is a bit to some degree but you know i'd kind of work out work out how to control my drinking and this will get people off my back and etc etc and i went in there and the first thing i heard was that it's an abstinence program and um I remember thinking this is so radical what these people are on about here and but at the same time I, I was identifying so much with what I was hearing and that really scared the shit out of me. Mm. Um, so then what I did was I I fixated on the stuff that I hadn't done. So when I heard people talking about you know divorce or losing their kids or crashing their car or this, 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 
I went back to you know my family and I said, "Oh, mate, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I've mm. you should hear what these weirdos have been talking about. Like they've lost their families and they've they've been in domestic violence and this this is. I haven't done any of this. All of the yets, I'm, right? I'm all good. So I was like, this is great. So I was I was really I really wanted to parade all the differences and not the similarities when really the thing that I was hearing in the rooms was that a big reason why people were drinking the way they drank was because they were restless, they were irritable and they were discontent. And that just knocked me over because I thought, fuck, that is exactly how I feel, but I've never had the words Mm. to put to it. But that's it. I am restless. I am discontent. I'm not happy with who I am. Um, and, And I use alcohol to soothe myself and soothe all of that stuff that I don't need to worry about. And so I thought, shit, I'm, this is probably I'm probably one of these people. Mm. Um, but at that stage, I wasn't ready to let go of alcohol um, because it had worked too well for me. And um, the alternative was that I had to deal with myself, and I didn't want to do that either. So um, I was one foot in, one foot out. I didn't do the things that people told me to do. Mm. Um, I didn't get a sponsor. I didn't start the steps, um, and that led to three more years of drinking. Um, of, Were you in and out over those three years or did you just leave altogether? Uh, I think I left altogether for a, a block of time and then I sort of popped myself back in and then basically I just wanted to keep drinking and, mm. I, and, I, and I knew that AA represented a program of some accountability. You know, people would get your numbers and they check in on you, which I hated. It was just <laughs> the worst thing about AA for me at the beginning was that all these people wanted to be friends with me. That's how I viewed it. They didn't want to be friends with me. They wanted to help me yeah. and by extension help themselves and help their own sobriety. But I didn't get that link. I thought they were I thought they were like devoid of friends. And they, and they were, <laughs> Thinking these losers, yeah. why, oh, why like, are they calling me? Oh, I was just like, get a life. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I, I was basically out. One foot in, one foot out, out for a bit and then – um, you know, I went to a 12-step rehab and I had no choice but to get back in. Mm, okay. So three years of what I imagine was probably a lot of pain and chaos. And then I'm imagining that there must have been some sort of rock-bottom moment that led you to step into that long-term rehab. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, there were a few rock-bottoms. Um, it's very. I, I find it hard to pinpoint a rock bottom because it felt like there was a lot of the same a lot of the same feeling of sick and tired and feeling shit and waking up feeling shit and um, feeling totally uncomfortable when I was sober but there was an event that I need to be a little bit careful how I tell this story Um, but it was my old job and um, I went into work um, pissed Um, and it was it was a job that was quite public, um, and it was it was in the end it was handled with a lot of care and compassion by my boss at the time. Um, I was in her office, and um, I'd been drinking, you know, all morning. I brought in, you know, a Gatorade bottle full of vodka that was in my, um, you know, work bag, and I was kind of keeping it together. And then at one stage, I just vomited. And all this red wine just came out on my desk and, you know, it was humiliating. Mm. Um, and in that moment, she was just like, what the fuck is going on here? And I, in that moment, just looked at her and said, I'm really sorry. I'm, I've got some really bad mental health 
problems and I'm using alcohol to cope. Mm. Um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, she had lots of experience in this space um, and she helped me through that day. She got me a change of clothes, she got me into an Uber and she, you know, she, my welfare was number one to her at that point and yeah. I was, you know, I'm so indebted to her for um, the way that she handled that. Um, but she, she, you know, she reached out to my family and kind of 12-stepped them a bit mm. and kind of said, look, this is what's going on with him. Um, you know, he's an alcoholic. He's, this is an addiction. Um, it's not the end of the world. Um, it's something you can recover from. But, you know, and she was the one that kind of put rehab on the agenda and mm. she was amazing. She was a saint. Um, and from that point onwards, the conversations that I had with my parents changed a bit. I think we started to understand each other a bit more about what I was dealing with. And, uh, you know, with obviously their blessing and support, um, you know, I found myself into rehab. As incredibly traumatic and uncomfortable that situation must have been, was there any sense of relief that, you know, you didn't have to hide anymore? I, I felt relief when I started vomiting at the table. Yeah. Because, yes, I was, yes, it was humiliating. Yes, you know, like awful, but... I can't explain that away. I can't. What do it. I say? That's it. The jig <laughs> uh, red, is up. Yeah, it's red cordial, and you know, <laughs> like I can't. That's it. That's mm. the. Um, that's that moment of just getting pushed into the corner, and there's nowhere else to go. And yeah. and there is something so scary about having very few options, but there's also great relief in having your options so limited at that point. Um, so that was relief. I felt relief as soon as it was happening. Um, mm. And when I heard the, the words coming out of my mouth, you know, I'm struggling with my mental health and I use alcohol. When I actually heard myself say that, you know, because it made sense to me. That's what's going on. Yeah. It's almost like there was nowhere left to hide. You know, you couldn't deny it anymore. Yeah. Well, I couldn't put on the happy face. I couldn't project confidence that I didn't have. I couldn't, you know, make jokes to hide, which is what I used to always do. You know, I used to make jokes out of things, you know, like I'd... You know, intimacy intimacy kind of freaked me out a bit and I always used to joke to kind of get through that. And all that shit that I used to carry on with, um, I can't call on any of that at that moment. It is like me and this person looking straight at me and the, the problem or the, the situation is as clear as anything. Mm. And at that point, then the solution becomes a lot clearer. So the solution was rehab. Mm. How did that come about? Um, it was something that was my my dear mum <laughs> was doing a bit of research on, and you know, you know how mums like just going to action mode, and they <laughs> and they you know. So she was like, you know, on the internet, she got a few different places, and she said, you know, just you know, very in a nice way, ring them, you know, <laughs> ring them, um, and because you know, like we're talking about, I needed the circuit breaker. I needed to, you know, I tried AA, that didn't take. Hopefully, you know, they all people say that all roads lead to AA and, you know, that might, might be debatable. I tend to think it probably does. But I knew I was probably going to get there as a longer-term thing. But for the short term, I had to, yeah, break the circuit. And I came across, well, my mum did, a rehab called Refocus, which was at that stage, it was based in St Kilda in uh, Waterloo Crescent, uh, which is just off Barclay Street. And I rang them up and... 
I was chatting to this woman who was the owner and CEO, and I'm not sure if she still is anymore. Um, I won't use her name because I haven't spoken to her about going on this, but I spoke to her, and she's a bit of a legend in the industry, and she did myself ass- my assessment with her. And I was trying to say enough that she would say, oh, you don't need to come. I still, <laughs> I still didn't want to go. I still – anyway, so I was saying things to her like, oh, yeah, you know, I think – I think once my mental health is under control, my drinking will also be under control. Mm. And she was really polite about it, but I know she must have just been pissing herself laughing <laughs> listening to this. As I was kind of dancing around, dancing around, and we got to the end and I said, oh, so what do you reckon? And she goes, well, Pat, you're in hell at the moment because you are clearly, you are in the grips of this thing up to your eyeballs and you are still fighting against against it. And that is hell. It's the worst place on earth for an addict is to is to be an addict and still fight mm. being one. And she goes, you know, so yeah, you qualify. And there's a bed here. And she really put a bit of a timeline on it. She goes, there's a bed here, but I need to hear back from you in, you know, 48 hours. So talk to people, you know. And um, I got off the phone with her and I I was walking around Hawthorne at the stage and I was at Glenferry Oval and I went and I sat in the middle of the oval after this phone call and I was sort of just lying there and I was thinking to myself, well, I don't want to go, but what else, what's the, what, what's the alternative? I go back and live with mum and dad who will probably kick me out, you know, because they're, they're basically saying, no, mate, you've got to get better, you got to get well. Mm. We can't keep supporting this. We can't support you if you won't help yourself. Mm. Um, you know, pretty blunt. And so I thought, you know, my future does not look very rosy if mm. I don't take this opportunity and do this. Um, and so I finally got myself into a position where I thought, well, I'm, I'm excited to do this now. I think I'm ready. And I walked back in and my dad was on the couch and I just said, all right, I'm going on Sunday. And he was like, fantastic. I'll, I'll pack you back. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I'll drive you. <laughs> I'll drive you. And, um, and that was it. And two days later, I, I, I just rocked up and, and that was it. Wow. So for those that, you know, maybe only know about rehab from movies like 28 Days, (laughs) what can you describe about your time, that experience and what you took out of it? Uh, If I was to summarise it, it would be the three months I spent there were the happiest days of my life, but they were also the most brutal um, and toughest. Um, So... Every rehab has a, probably a bit of a different approach in how they look at things. The rehab that I went to was, it was a therapeutic community, but it was about really understanding yourself from the inside out and, and to have other people uh, witness that. Um, so it was recovery you know, within a community, but the way it was set up, you got to know people so intimately so quickly mm. and within a week of being there um i remember saying to someone this is fucking so weird that these nine or ten other strangers basically know me better than my parents do know me better than my friends do so weird how it transpired like that it's like for the first time you're letting down the mask right you're letting people really see you you're cracking yourself open That's in front it. of all these people and you and i'm and i and I was a bit resistant in the first day, but then I was like, well, fuck, I'm here. I may as well just do this properly. Yeah. And that involved 
um, a lot of group therapy, a lot of one-on-one therapy, and it was it was just about yeah letting letting your guard down and being vulnerable and sharing sharing stuff about yourself that for eight or nine years it was the scariest thing in the world to have anyone know the things that were going on inside my head and then I decided to take the the leap and put some trust in this community to hear it and they did and they supported me and I supported them and that's what started this day-to-day at times it was a bit of a grind and at times I wanted to leave and I wanted to be the furthest part way away from there but then at the same time I realized I have to stay because this is really my only shot at, at getting better. Did you go in knowing that you were going to be there for three months? No I thought I thought 28 days was too long I thought oh yeah. god can we cut that in half but what I found out was that <laughs> there was like, and this is like, I'm, I'm, I know I'm throwing a lot of analogies around, but it's like how I, it's how I explain things. But sure. a great one way to explain rehab is that you get there and it's like you you're driving in a car and you put on the brakes and all your luggage comes flying forward <laughs> and it hits the front. And that's what it was like for me in the first week. I realized that, you know, I didn't drink because I had an affinity to love alcohol. I drank because there was trauma and there was grief and there was loss and there was um, an identity crisis that doesn't get fixed in 28 days no. I, I realized and I realized that for me to do it and do it properly I had to commit longer term and as a result that meant that my counselor could do you know greater work with me because he would say to me you know if, if you're doing 28 days you know, we really kind of only have three sessions together and I'm not going to load you up with all this new stuff for you to then go out there and be confused about. So I have to tailor my sessions based on your stay. And so 12 weeks meant that he could kind of move into certain areas and spend some time in there. We could really... And so we could actually do the work. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I extended a couple of times and, um, you know, I caught up with my parents and... I would say something like, look, I think I'm going to have to stay another month because as uh, as this woman who runs the rehab says, I'm half cooked and, you know, <laughs> if she wants to cook me properly. And they were like, oh, that sounds a bit weird, but that's <laughs> okay, fine. That's great. And and so I did. And so they were, you know, hugely supportive. And, and then I got to the end of the three months and I felt done. I felt cooked. I felt mm. like I'd really emptied myself out and could sort of start living in the world again. What was something that you didn't know about yourself prior to going in there that you perhaps, you know, had a light bulb moment or epiphany, realisation, whatever you want to call it, something that, you know, was there all along that you just weren't able to tap into while you were in that haze of addiction or even prior? I would say the the very simple fact of that I am enough and that it's okay not to be okay Mm. because those two things were things that when I was drinking and in and when I was full of fear and resentment and ego I would have heard those phrases and thought fuck off wanker like you know that's (laughs) that's that doesn't mean anything that's they're just words that don't mean anything but they are such powerful statements and they they epitomize all the things that I was drinking on. I didn't think that I was enough. I didn't think that 
I was worthy of people's love or respect or and I also had this great fear of not being okay and people thinking that I wasn't okay Mm. Um, it was like my greatest fear was that someone could have an interaction with me and walk away and go oh he seems like he's struggling now I, I kind of think well you know if I reverse the position if I was to run into someone and I thought they were struggling I would think that person's struggling I wonder why I hope they're okay and I would generally think the best for them and that's how I think most people are with each other you know mm. we kind of as long as we're not interfering on another person's happiness or safety or things like that we generally just want the best for each other mm. and that that view was one that I just did not have and rehab taught me that um, it's okay to struggle it's okay to say you're struggling it's okay to be confused about your place in the world it's okay to wrestle with you know your identity and all these things it's okay mm-hmm. um, and that was like this great great um, weight off the shoulders um, yeah it sounds like you had a fundamental shift in your core belief system big you time know, from I'm not enough to I am enough yeah I am enough it's yeah. it's like it's so simple but it's um it's huge at it's the same huge time. at the same time it, it, it's really it's a really complicated thing um because you hear it and if you and if you don't understand if you don't understand recovery and you don't understand addiction and these sort of things you hear that and you think oh that's just something you get tattooed or you know <laughs> it's like it's just one of those things but there's so much in it enough you know enough for who enough for you enough for your loved ones enough and it's there's so much to unpack in that and um, it then flows out into so many other areas of your life and almost like i think what you need to be enough and you you begin to realize that it's it's not much it all comes from inside so it's not about the house the car the girl you know it's not about externals like everything you need to be okay is within you and i think something that's something we don't feel fundamentally when we're in addiction I th- yeah i i absolutely agree and i think we we can get into a bit of a spin where it's like we we judge our our place or how we're traveling by you know the validation that we do or don't receive from others mm. and if we're not if we're not getting that well it's like oh well, shit something's fundamentally wrong about me and if we are getting that well then we feed off it but then that is short-lived as well mm-hmm. and that and that kind of that runs out too and that's not very lasting either and so like you were saying i used to think that you know i need to look good i need to I need to be doing something that people think is impressive or that they respect. And it didn't bring me any peace of mind. It it made me feel there was always this incongruency with what I was presenting out there and the person that I was going to bed at night. It was just this total incongruency that fed the anxiety, fed the depression. Now it's like, you know, I I post on Instagram the dogs that I look after because I fucking love looking after dogs. Yeah. And and that and and I'm proud of doing that because it's the thing that gives me that peace of mind that that makes me wake up in the morning you know being okay with who I am and and if and if that is what I do forever well then so be it and if that's what gives me that peace of mind well then that's great um because I'm I'm going further away from what I think others want or what they think is impressive to what's actually helping me mm. So much in that. I think one thing I was thinking about as you were saying all of that is that 
in sobriety, one thing that I've learned to do is practice non-attachment. And I think it's all related to what you were just sharing. It's like I no longer seek validation from external things, people, places or things. But not only that, there, that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy nice things. But the key difference is now that if you were to take it away from me, if you were to take my car away from me, if you know, whatever it is that I have with these things, I would still be okay. Mm. And I think that's been the key shift for me because it doesn't mean that you get sober and you lose the desire to want anything. That's not what we're saying. And and getting getting validation is still great. Correct. You know, like I, it's still still feels nice. And we're because st- because we're still human beings, and yeah. it's nice to it's nice to be nice as as, <laughs> as people say. You know, and and if and if someone says to me that they think that I'm doing well. That means the world to me, particularly when you know my parents say it, or mm. people that have, that knew me when I was drinking and and can see some some shifts in my behaviour. Um, it's great that they recognise it, um, but at the same time, you know, one of the things I've learnt in the program that we're part of is that you know we can't control people's the way that people react to things. We can't control how they feel about certain things. All we can do is um, to use one of our cliches to keep our side of the street clean. Mm. And worry about how we're how we are in the world, and that's and that's the most important thing. Mm, so true. Tell me, what's been the most challenging part about getting sober for you? Um. Well, I mean, dating comes to mind. Yeah. Um. That is a that is a minefield. Um. Tell me more about that. Well, I don't have that crutch anymore, and I I have to. And in the way of the world, you know, you we use these apps and we, particularly during the sort of the COVID period, you know, the only date you could go on was a coffee and a walk. And, um, you know, I'm a bit of an overthinker and I'm prone to, you know, worrying and, you know, things like that. And so it's uncomfortable and um, I, I don't, I can't, um, I can't fall back on something that gives me ease and comfort. And the reality is that when you meet someone new or when I meet someone new and, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of auditioning and I'm trying to get to know them and, you know, I'm, I'm very present and I'm present in a way that means I can hear everything, I can feel everything, I'm aware of my surroundings and there's something so scary about that. Mm. But it's awesome at the same time but it's fucking scary because, you know, you kind of feel like I'm falling and then I'm not and then I'm falling again and I just don't have that, that leveller of alcohol to just bring me back to kind of peace and calmness. So it feels like mm. I'm going 100 miles an hour and I've had some dates that have just been just shit shows because they're just full of awkwardness and uncomfortability <laughs> and then I then I get a bit dirty and I think, oh, God, that was a disaster. I'm never doing that again. Mm. And then I kind of get back out there and have another go. And it's a bit of a it's a bit of a minefield. And then I chat to my sponsor about it. He thinks it's pretty funny and then he tells me that he's going through the same sort of things as well and then we laugh about it and yeah. it's just one big kind of you know and that and that's a bit of a challenge um and i think it's a challenge because i'm still kind of working out who i am and you know we say in our program you know don't date in your first year that's and, right you know, but i'm over a year now so i can and i did <laughs> but i did in my first year i was going to say did you follow the rules no no i didn't no, i did <laughs> the suggested thing i, I dated say. i actually dated while i was in a transition house after rehab mm. which was and how re- did that go for you well, <laughs> i tell you how it went <laughs> the the first date i went on 
She goes, I notice in your profile that you don't drink. Why don't you drink? And I answered that question with, oh, well, I was addicted and my life was in ruins and I went to rehab and I had all this trauma and pain and grief. And I look back at her, her eyeballs are like just as wide as anything. She's like, oh, cool. Well, I'm I'm glad you don't drink that anymore. And I was like, yep, that's, um, yeah. Isn't that so funny though? Because if you were to say that to another person in recovery, it's so normal. That's just how we talk, right? That's how we talk. We we, (laughs) We share by oversharing, um, yeah. but that's not what people – And I, so I had to learn that, that, you know, I don't need to spill my guts. Mm. Um, you know, I need to have a bit more respect for my own recovery and for my own sobriety that, you know, bits and pieces, um, which is what I've learned. But, you know, it's still still a challenge. Socialising is a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't love being in big groups with people that I don't know that well. Or in you know loud places, that can make me feel a bit on edge. Um, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I'm a little bit the same. You know, one of my fears around giving up alcohol was that I wouldn't be able to do the same things that I used to do, and a lot of that was mm. bars and clubs. Mm. And in sobriety, what I've come to realise, and I'm so grateful for this, is I actually don't want to do them anymore. So there was a period in my early recovery where. I was still trying to do my old life sober and it just didn't work. There was this disconnect and this real unease and, you know, that restlessness and irritability started to creep back in and I had to be really conscious of it because when I was able to just fully let go and accept this new life and really step in and embrace sobriety, I now don't even miss it. And the idea of being in a nightclub is probably my worst nightmare in saying that still love a dance however Mm. I would much rather do that you know at a friend's house you know with a couple of girls blast the music it's just different well and that's that's absolutely right and that's that is why when you asked that question I actually answered with dating because I was thinking about it and I was thinking are they actually challenges or is that just not who I am Mm. that's the question you know if if I find being in a big room with lots of people and um, loudness and, and if I find that deeply uncomfortable when I'm sober that means that I just don't instinctively like that thing and that probably means that I'm a bit like my mum and dad who are both kind of introverts and they're both probably quite shy they can you know if they're in the right environments they can be quite extroverted and you know and, and big but um, you know I am an introvert I am quite shy I don't you know, collect friends like their post stamps. I don't just click with people for the sake of clicking, you know. That's just not who I am. So it's not necessarily I see it as a challenge because I just see it as something that is not for me. Um, mm. And you and know, the more sober you are, the more clear you become on who you are. Yeah, and what, and I, that like, evolves what and I like and what I don't like. And um, that's a that's another great thing about about sobriety is that you you realise that you don't actually have to take on personas and you don't have to be, you know, fun Ash or fun Pat mm. who's the life of the party because there's always going to be someone that will be the life of the party and you can enjoy them and enjoy how they are. Yeah. You can be the one that is in the corner having those really deep and intimate conversations that other people don't like doing. Yeah, or well, a big uh, one for me was realising that I don't need to be the centre of attention. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's a big one because it's like, yeah, that's that's something that my sponsor told me once when – we went to this meeting out in the middle of nowhere together 
um, for a bit of bonding. And we went to the second half dinner. And I was like, fuck this. I hate second halves. I hate socialising. I don't know these people. I've got, you know, I'm sweating. I feel, you know. Mm. And he goes, you know, why don't you just hold space and just listen and talk when spoken to and that's it. Mm. What's wrong with that? Profound. Yeah, What what is wrong with that? I said, there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He goes, you don't have to be anything other than – you can be the one that sits there quietly, eats your dinner and listens to the other people tell their stories and you laugh if you find it funny and then you can say goodbye and go home and I promise you that group of people will not think one thing about you from that moment onwards yeah. and that's totally true. So, so true. Tell me, what's been the biggest lesson that you've learned in sobriety thus far? The biggest lesson is um, is one that is probably critical to, I think, for me staying sober and that is to accept the things I can't change and to let go of – let go and, and have a willingness to – let people be as I find them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, not try to control the narrative. Not try to control how people perceive me because it's a waste of time and energy. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever I feel myself doing that, I feel like my recovery is a little bit off. and yeah. Maybe I've missed a few meetings and maybe I've, I'm not quite centred. So there's old behaviours that can creep back in that I recognise as being, oh, yeah, shit, that was me when I was drinking. I just don't have the alcohol this time. And, you know, it makes me deeply uncomfortable and that restlessness comes back in and then I get to a meeting and I hear what I need to hear and then I realise I'm not running the show. Um, You know, I need to have some acceptance. Um, And that's the most important thing because... The restless and the irritability, like I said at the start, you know, that is the essence of why I drank. Mm. So when that creeps back in, that tells me that I'm not there's something that I'm missing. So what are the key things that you do to maintain your recovery, your sobriety today? Uh, meditation's a big one. Um, yeah, I I used to so we did that every day in rehab and it was my first introduction to meditation. And you know, I hated it and I couldn't connect with it for a period of time there. I found it really boring and my head was racing. And um, But then I started to realise that meditation is, for me, what a drink was, basically. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm spinning out. I can't quite get, you know, I'm thinking about this and I'm worried about that. I'm pissed off with him. Okay, I'm just going to go and sit and I'm going to sit by myself for 10 minutes. I might put a guided one on on YouTube and I'm going to flush that out. And that's sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But that's that's why that's why I hook into meditation mm. primarily. Um, I think the challenge for me though is to do it as a matter of as 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 a regular thing, rather than the thing that I grab to when I'm most at stress or unease. Yeah. And that's the moment. That's kind of how I how I meditate. It's more when I'm spinning. And I take my 10 minutes and I listen to my breathing. I do all that. And I feel better. I think, oh, that's fantastic. Why don't I do that every day? But I don't. And then, <laughs> and then tomorrow comes around and, um, you know, I'm up in the morning and I'm, I'm, I'm racing to go and walk a greyhound and then mm. it's like I forget about that meditation. But then the meditating can, can, can present itself in different ways. Um, it might be that when I am walking a dog, 
you know, I don't have my AirPods in and I listen for, you know, the sounds that the dog makes, you know, the, the way that the dog, you know, steps on a piece of bark or, you know, just that little rustling and, and then I get really centred and listening to that mm. and that makes me feel so much lighter. Well, it's um, really about just being present in that moment, isn't it? You know, there's no thinking about the past or fear of the future mm. in that moment. You're just purely present. And if the phone's not around, like the phone is a big one you know i find that if i'm scrolling and scrolling and scrolling something's off mm. something is something i'm distracting myself from don't know what it is but it's something and it's yeah. it's trying to be busy and it's trying to be you know it's like i think i've learned like there's a difference between doing nothing and relaxing to distracting mm. and it's and and they look very similar because the distracting could be be lying on the couch watching a show but it's the state of mind that I'm in while I'm doing it, um, mm. you know, there's a big difference between the two. And sometimes I can do one better than the other. It's so true, isn't it? I can often catch myself, you know, what even just watching a show and then an ad break comes on and I grow, I go for my phone, mm. like just the inability to sit. And sometimes I'll be watching a really good show and I'll keep having to rewind and watch parts because I miss it because I'm on my phone. It's the worst. What, like, <laughs> I would, I need someone to, I mean, I get what's going on, but it's, it's, it's like a, I can't, I can't fully engross myself in one thing. I find that really hard to do too. I wonder if that's part of this disease. Yeah. Like watching a movie, sitting down, I find can be really challenging at times yeah and it can sometimes be you know i'm not sure if you're a fan but you know better call soul just had its finale and you know it's a show that i was watching it stems from breaking bad and you know it's a it's a cracking show but it is one of those shows that you've got to concentrate because it's so visual and there's not a lot of dialogue in some episodes some episodes there's very little dialogue and it's a lot of about what you see and Things like that. I'm there on my phone, and I'm thinking, <laughs> "What, <laughs> Pat? Just put it down. You're like you're not the CEO of BHP. <laughs> like you don't need to be so connected to every single person. Like, totally. like what am I worried about that someone doesn't get onto me for an hour? That mm. oh, well, I'll call them when the show's finished. Just concentrate on the show, enjoy the show. But I'm there scrolling away, and you know, yeah, it's a. You know what though? The good thing is. Just by having this conversation, we're making each other aware and I feel like change always has to start with awareness. So yes. let's hold each other accountable to that one. Exactly. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know what I'm thinking is going to happen if I don't look at my phone. <laughs> like what? Oh, it's, yeah. uh, the Nasdaq's crazy. just crashed <laughs> because you, were, you weren't on and you weren't scrolling Twitter or Instagram. And, oh, our um, own self-importance yeah. once again. <laughs> <laughs> Pat... As we near the end of the interview, I like to ask my guests one final question. Now, that question is, what are the three non-negotiables that you implement in your life today that allow you to live happy, joyous and free? Well, your old man said step 10, 11 and 12 and I was going to say that. So, I don't want to repeat, <laughs> repeat what Rod said but um, – Three things. Um, I would say the first thing is being available to people as much as I possibly can. Mm. 
in a way that is not about people pleasing, but just being available, um, you know, and and holding my word and commitments. <clears throat> so, for example, you know, I said to um, you know my sister a while ago, you know, oh, let me know when um, so and so's got her next swimming lesson. I'd love to come. That's something that I would used to say when I was drinking and then never follow through, you know, because mm. I'd love going for the, oh, yeah, I'll come along. What a great guy, you know. Mm. I love the quick kind of hit mm. of validation. Oh, good on you for wanting to come. But they're not actually coming. Not so, actually showing up. So now it's, it's, it's a real thing for me where I say, you know, if I am committed to something, I do want to show up and be there in the way that I said I was going to be there. The second thing would be my program in AA is – I have to continue to see that as the most important commitment in my life um, and it is because I've often seen myself that if I've missed a couple of meetings or I do something that's a little outside the program and I'm, I'm taking back a little self-will, I always feel worse. I never feel better. I always feel worse. And um, then I lean into the solution, which is for me is regular meetings, lots of service, um, you know, connecting with my sponsor, doing the steps. If I'm not doing those things, I just feel shit. It's just as simple as that. I just feel off. I feel like my head starts to feel yucky. Mm. Um, I start feeling lazy. Um, I start, you know, I notice my energy just sort of decreases. I just don't feel like I have much to give to anyone. Yeah. And and so that's that's why that's the most important commitment. So, you know, regular and frequent meetings, Um it's almost like a power source, isn't it? Yeah. AA. You just need to plug back in. Have to plug back in. And yeah. it's one of those ones like early days I used to hear people get up and talk and be like, oh, I really need a meeting. I really need a meeting. I never understood what that meant. Like mm. how do you need a meeting? I absolutely understand that now. Sometimes I'm at a meeting, but other times I need a meeting and I'm, I'm running kind of on empty and yeah. I need to kind of plug back in, hear the stuff that I need to hear um, you know, share really honestly about you know my experience, and then then I can be then I can be there for other people, um, and and that's like the first thing I talk about. And the third thing, happy, joyous, and free. Um, it's a tough one. I think just you know doing the things that I know bring me you know joy, happiness, but the things that I enjoy doing. And not worried about how it looks to someone else, mm. um, and being and just constantly being prepared to just try to just be myself and be authentic, um, because otherwise, if I am back in that role of trying to play someone or project something, I start feeling like an alcoholic again. That's not in recovery, and I start feeling like I'm hiding something, and you know that secrecy and those things. That's what breeds a lot of the addiction for a lot of the time is the shame and the secrecy. That's right. So just being as honest as I can be is, is really important. Awesome. Some sound advice there. Thank you. It took me a while to get that one out, but I got there. You definitely got there. Patrick, I can't thank you enough for Pleasure. coming along today, for giving us your time, sharing your story. We say here on the podcast that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So thank you so much for being here and being part of the show. Couldn't agree more and yeah, thanks so much and all the best for the, the rest of this great venture. Thank you.